Welcome to How Did I Get Here? This is the podcast where we ignore the new release and we talk about the journey. We want to know, how did you get to the point where you have an idea and it, then it can turn into a TV show or a documentary or a book and people that you were not Facebook friends with like it? What is your story? This is a podcast. It's more of, of a conversation than an interview and we don't edit. So you'll hear heaps of ums and uhs. Just get over it. Today we're asking Zarka Nawaz how she got here. Zarka is a filmmaker, TV show creator, and comedy writer. Zarka is the Muslim Canadian Sarah Silverman. Scratch that. Sarah Silverman is the Jewish American Zarka Nawaz because I've read both their memoirs and I, just like our healthcare systems, the Canadian one is better. So Zarka, in four words, how did you get here? I was going to say, my God, you read Sarah Silverman's. I did. And I, I want to know more about that. Was it's, it good? You know what? She's had a really interesting life. Yeah. Um, but she's not a very good writer. No. Really? No. I mean. Was it funny? Uh, not in the delivery. Wow. Some Some of the things are just funny because there were stories from her life. And also she had a whole, she had a chapter about her and Kimmel and she did it from the perspective of, like, a cat. I don't know if she was the cat or he was the cat and losing a cat. And you're just kind of like, what are you even talking about? It was really confusing. I'm so, I'm so much more interested <laughs> in a conversation about Sarah Silverman's memoir. Yeah. And so, oh, yeah. Okay, so you would say that my memoir was more funny? For sure. Really? I'm so yeah. shocked and um, impressed to hear that simultaneously. Because <laughs> like, wow. she's, she's had some crazy stuff in her life. She, yeah. she had a psychologist she went to as a, as a child. So she's 12 years old or something. And then she, she goes uh, and she's like starting to like, she feels like get to a really good ground with the psychologist. And then she goes to see him. And then, and then the secretary comes running out and she's like, he hung himself. And her psychiatrist hung himself right before she went to see him. So she's got, like, crazy things like that. And her dad's really interesting. And so she's got an interesting family. She's got good stories. But it's just, yeah, it, you know, it would it probably would have been better if it was, like, her just telling them in a stand-up thing. But writing them out, I think she made the mistake that I think a lot of people make is uh, when you write a, some people, like, I'm going to write a book. And then they try and sound like a writer. But writers don't actually sound like that. <laughs> this know. is great. We could talk about other women's memoirs. But anyways. <laughs> so let's talk about did you read Tina Fey's memoir? Uh Boss Man. Boss, boss Lady. Bossy Pants. Pants. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, did you? Yes. And did you love it? I did. Yeah. I was hoping that you would read it and I, I was more I funny. Don't know. Right? <laughs> but tell me about other books. Like, let's talk about other books yours are yours yeah. is funnier than your book is way funnier than Sarah Binks. Who's Sarah Binks? It's 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 like a spoof. Uh, it's it's like a Canadian renowned uh, satire novel. With Sarah Binks' character artist that doesn't really exist. It's like a biography. Who writes the book? Uh, it was just one book. I can't remember who the writer was. He's from Manitoba, but it's supposed to be one of like the best Canadian books. And really, yours is funnier than that for sure. Oh my god! Yeah. So I finally have there someone who has, who has an unbiased opinion. Yeah, I, I started <laughs> to realize I don't. I don't read a lot of comedy books. I'm just realizing right now. But are there a lot out there? You know, when I... Uh, Have you read no. Susan Juby, who I've discovered at this book festival? No. She's no. the one who won the Stephen Leacock Award for humor this year. Yeah. Or last year. I can't remember. But don't you, don't you feel like writing is... The, the bar is... A, a, writing a book 
it's easier to get people to laugh because they're not expecting a book to make them laugh as much. Whereas, like, working on TV like you did, people are, people come saying, make me laugh. So it's a bit, I would imagine it would be a bit harder writing for television. I guess I've never thought of it that way. Because no matter what I do, whether I write a tweet mm-hmm. or write a speech or write an acceptance or walk up on stage, yeah, I just assume people are going to expect me to be funny. Yeah. And so I try to find ways to meet their expectations and sometimes that doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> like my brother asked me to speak at his wedding mm-hmm. and I thought I did great. <laughs> <laughs> However. He didn't think so. No, nor did my family or, or people in the crowd. Is this your uh, brother that's in your documentary? Oh, me and the moms. Oh, sa- okay. So sadly, both my brothers that you, whoever knows my work, they were married at the time of my work. So both brothers are divorced. Okay. So, you know, that chapter in my book, well, he, my brother marries Suzanne. Yeah, yeah. So after 20 years of marriage, they divorced. Yeah. I'm so sorry to tell you this. And it's in the book. Dustin. <laughs> I feel I should have footnoted the second edition, but, <laughs> you know. Um, anyway. It is, that, is, oh, that is always tough. Um, I have a sister who's divorced as well. And, yeah. And it's, you know, there was like a... How many years did you... They were together nine Nine, nine kids? Years, yeah. No kids. Okay. Yeah. And, um, like, they even had uh, a stone. Like, they got married on my parents' farm. So I got married on my parents' farm, too. And uh, th- there was a stone in their garden that had, like, their names chiseled oh, in it. And, no. yeah. and uh, I just, like, and I was just visiting, and she was there, and I said, let's get rid of it. You know, it's kind of, you know, I was like, if you want, like, I'll help you get rid of it kind of thing. And then we realized that my parents had put a, a even bigger stone over it. So we're like, ah, that's, that's probably good enough. <laughs> but yes, yeah, that, that stuff's tough. But, it's hard, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, he got remarried. Mm-hmm. And I had to give a speech. And I find the second speech harder than the first speeches. Mm-hmm. Because. Is this Dutch? Is no, it? it's Mazamo. Okay, all right, right. Yeah. And so you don't, you know, you're not sure what to say at the mm-hmm. second marriage mm-hmm. because. You know, you don't want to accidentally say something stupid and get yourself in trouble. Yeah. And I didn't really know his second wife, the second person that he married mm-hmm. became his wife that well. And so I spoke mostly about my parents and made jokes about them and their hoarding <laughs> habits. <laughs> my father's a hoarder and my mom's a minimalist. Yeah. And he worked for a garbage collecting company as a, you know, the engineers who test the water and the soil samples yeah, underneath yeah, garbage sites because yeah. you have to continually to do that make sure mm-hmm. that the water table is not being contaminated so that would bring him to a lot of like dump sites and mm-hmm. so he brought home a lot of stuff <laughs> so it was like so you know, and one time yeah. he brought home a tar warmer right like, like all a things. tar warmer I know like no one had heard of what a tar warmer was and my mom would after a month or so like throw them back in the garbage yeah. and so then three months later he brings home some tar to fill the holes in the driveway. Yeah, yeah. And he goes, where's my tar warmer? And my mom is like, I don't know. <laughs> Those are words you don't want to hear in your marriage. Yeah. <laughs> Where is my, my tar, tar warmer? warmer. Oh, no. oh, my God. So there you go. And so as my parents get older, my mother, I know this happens to a lot of couples where if the husband has been kind of more dominant, mm-hmm. I find that that sort of starts to shift a little bit in old age. Hmm. And the women become... Maybe they're getting their revenge or something, and they're starting to become more dominant. And so in my parents' marriage, 
my mom is becoming much more bolder in terms of throwing away all his stuff. Really? And I, I can tell that he needs to be surrounded by garbage for his <laughs> psychological well-being. Yeah. And so what that does to a human being is it starts to make them, force them to behave in ways that, that you know, to compensate. Yeah. So what he's doing now is because she won't let him clutter her home. He buys molding, crown molding, mm-hmm. and puts it up in the ceilings and starts to decorate the ceilings because she can't reach it. Yeah. So <laughs> under every like fixture, there's yeah. some ornate right. crown molding thing, and he's putting it, and she can't obviously tear mm-hmm. down the crown molding. Mm-hmm. So I come every time I come to their houses, even more and more. It's, the roof is getting cluttered, and it looks mm-hmm. like some sort of Greek and you know museum <laughs> thing yeah, yeah, yeah. with all this crown molding, and you know this Pakistani <laughs> house, right? And so my mom just sits and I can see her sipping her tea, staring, staring up at the crown molding. Like, my house is so cluttered. Right? Yeah, Cause, yeah. Because even though it's not technically clutter, it's bothering her, right? Because mm-hmm. it's just more things. But she, but this is so. This is their passive aggressive relationship. Oh yeah. Is that she, yeah? He she he can't throw away the crown molding. Yeah. The house is getting more cluttered, but the roof is becoming more ornate. Yeah. Like even see this lamp. Like he would have that. You know, you have that crown molding. It would be way bigger. And. Mm-hmm. Things I I think it's great that that when you talk about that passive aggressive like uh, um, Mary stuff I I've known um, a couple oh it's my in laws but <laughs> for I think like ever since I've known them so well, six seven years now they have been back and forth putting the remote controls in different places oh my god <laughs> so see, so he wants them out on the, the on the table uh, on the Actually, he wants them on, like, the, the armrest of the couch. He likes them there. It's right next to his spot. And she wants them away. And they just back and forth just every time it. they see it. They do. Move it. That's so but, much time. But at least like, they're not hiding them from each other. That yeah. That would be the next step, right? <laughs> be. So, um, so I guess we should, to get to the format, uh, walking through your journey as an artist, as a writer, um, you now in, in your memoir you talk about you really get your start writing uh, when you decide to go into journalism after, uh, you know, you're no longer going to medical school. So, and I was on, was there nothing before that, that, that you were, that no inkling of you wanting to be a writer or an artist or being It's a good question. I mean, I think I, my best friend who actually, Rahat, who told me about journalism was always talking about it and, you know, at Muslim camp. So at camp, I was always doing goofy things like writing plays and mm-hmm. sort of, you know, um, being sort of the yeah. creative person, like very, very creative organizing events and organizing skits and organizing, mm-hmm. like just, or, I was always the creative one coming up mm-hmm. with really interesting ways to, um, like, you know, that chapter about the, the, camp? the wedding, the we- the newlywed oh. game. Yeah. And, like I was always <laughs> that was... doing that stuff. Yeah. And, I think that was just a precursor to creativity. Mm-hmm. It was being expressed. I didn't think I could write. I didn't think I was a good writer, mm-hmm. but I was doing all these mm-hmm. other goofy things like expressing my creativity towards um, activism or organization. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it took me a long time to gain confidence in myself as a writer that I could actually write. Like, yeah. When did you start calling? Like, when when did when you introduce yourself to people and people say, "What do you do?" When did you start saying, "I'm a writer"? That's or, a good question. Even when I got worker. married, um, you know, when you get married, you have to put your profession on the form. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I couldn't even write journalism, journalist. 
Really? Yeah, I felt like I couldn't. I would be like a fraud. Because you always feel like a fraud, you know? Because, okay, I'm trying to remember. And you remember, weren't you working for, were you working for, for CBC, CBC yet? Or you just graduated? It was, I got married in 90. Let's see. I have to go back. When was my first kid born? 94. So I got married in 93, which means I graduated in 92. So I was working for a year or so before I had her. Oh, but mm-hmm. before that, yeah. So I was working freelance, and then I got a full time job. So as a freelance journalist, you felt, oh, I'm not. I, yeah, I like I can you feel like that. you can feel like you can say that. Mm-hmm. And now, if you ask me now, I feel like now I can maybe say I'm a writer. Just now? now? Yeah, now. <laughs> That's <laughs> wow. So you really have to be. Yeah, it's like uh, a lot of mental leaps of, um, and even now I can finally say to you, I think I can write comedy. You know what I mean? Just now. Now. <laughs> <laughs> well, well that's, it's good. Like, after yeah. writing so much comedy, it's good. That I know, you but can... you know, it's so weird because, especially when you write communally for a television show, mm-hmm. um, especially when you write with a lot of aggressive, competitive men, they have. Is that this, what the writer's room was like? Yeah, and very aggressive, very competitive, very yeah. male dominated, that they have this way of making you feel that they're the funny ones. And that, mm. that you have, you know, it's like, it's true what they say. Like, yeah. it's a very, it's like being on Wall Street in a way. Yeah. Like, you wouldn't I think it's that. just a joke, right? But yeah. but men get very competitive That's about the comedy. Yeah. And it sort of wears you down. You don't yeah. realize how much it wears you down. And it wasn't until actually I finished writing the book, Laughing All the Way to the Mosque. Mm-hmm. And then the reviews started coming in. Mm-hmm. And then people started writing about how funny it was. And that mm-hmm. actually surprised me. I was actually surprised. <laughs> and that's when it started to dawn on me that yeah. I could write funny things and make mm-hmm. people laugh. Like yeah. it actually sort of, like you couldn't stop ignoring that. And yeah. So, I mean, that's sort of sad to say, right? And it's, <laughs> and maybe it's like, you know, so, you know, you read a lot about women and how they feel mm-hmm. in male dominated spaces. And yeah. it does affect it's, you psychologically. It's tough too, because I feel like uh, comedy is that one thing that does not work. Uh, if it's a competition, you know, and you're thinking, how can I further myself? It's best when you're just hanging out. And you, when you, you hear about writer, really great writers' rooms, that at least people, you know, I don't know, you know, the, their jokes are the best or whatever. But but uh, you know, when you read things about uh, writers' rooms that people really loved, it's when everyone just felt like they were friends, and it was just kind of like you're hanging out and throwing jokes back and forth, and it wasn't like a competitive thing. Yeah, our, our writer Sarah Silverman's biography. She talks about that. She says some rooms are better than others. Yeah, she she said she says like her room on her show was uh, super fun. Like yeah. everyone was friends, and then she says she moves to, uh, and then she said one of them moved to Parks and Rec, and they were like way too serious. So yeah, I mean, our room would change every year. Oh yeah, every so some years year. it would be some more... years would be great, some years it wouldn't be so great, and it depended on the year. Because um, it was a very difficult show in terms of because it was so successful so quickly, it became very political, and there's a lot of infighting, you know, particularly from the CBC and from the various levels of mm-hmm. bureaucracy, and so the room would change constantly because mm-hmm. people were trying. It was a tug and war of control, and mm. and so the people changed, and so the dynamics changed. Endlessly. Yeah. What's your favorite season? Probably third season. Yeah, JJ. Is it? Was that when JJ shows up? Uh, I think so. I just remember it got when I watched the third better. season. I was thinking, 
I was thinking, is third season always the best for shows? Like, it I think just we seems... gelled as a team. Third, I think maybe it was third and fourth season before things started. Yeah, so JJ was still around in third season. I'm trying to think, and I think it ends with with their non-marriage. Oh, I mean, with whatever happens. If you're... <laughs> you're new to the show. And then, yeah, it ends with their, with their wedding. Yeah. Yeah. But you can tell that uh, the makeup of the room will affect the show, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of, like, is the vision of the show being represented properly? Yeah, yeah. Because people have told me that. They can tell that I had mm-hmm. less involvement near the end mm-hmm. than the beginning and midpoint. Mm, and and yeah. I, I found that really interesting, that, that mm-hmm. it was actually affecting the type of comedy the show was making. Yeah. But it does, because you can't be your best self when mm-hmm. you're in like a more, a more dysfunctional room. Oh, yeah, totally. So, I mean, what I learned from that is that no matter what the situation was, just to become a better writer and just to hone the craft, mm-hmm. no matter whether I'm not writing television or write, not writing books, mm-hmm. even like that Funny and Die article. That was a yeah. hard article to write. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you haven't seen it yet, uh, go to our website, citadel.fm or citadelmagazine.com. In this article we're going to have that has a podcast and everything, there's links to everything we talk about. So there'll be, or you could just Google, uh, well, I'm trying to think if you Google Donald Trump. Muslims, you know. Well, yeah, <laughs> and Zarka Funny yeah. and Die is Zarka And Funny and Die. Funny or Die. If you do that. But you can find also find it on our site. Um, so, um, we're kind of, sorry, I kind of skipped around a bit. But, um, so let's go back to your, in journalism school, you're being uh, taught by Stuart McLean, you know, Mr. Um, and then morally found out that she <laughs> was, yeah. yeah. Was it? Well, he's just a, I find I find he's just a, an old Jimmy Stewart, yeah. voice wise. But anyways, what was that like being taught by Stuart McLean? I'm trying to remember. I mean, it was such a long time ago. He he would just talk about the importance of story, mm-hmm. finding the story um, in the small things. Yeah, he was always about the best stories are in the small things and in the details of those small things. Mm-hmm. And so that was a great learning curve because you know everyone thinks they need like the big important groundbreaking story but that mm-hmm. what what resonates more with people are the small stories yeah. because they're relatable yeah that's true and they matter more yeah and and then once you graduated you did some work on uh for cbc right i yeah. did i graduated i got an internship with peter zoski yeah on morningside that's some so yeah because i knew it was morningside but i was wondering if that was when zoski was there he was there, and it was like incredible working with a legend. Yeah, and he was an example of that finding the small stories. It would always yeah. be. So I mean, one of his things was uh, um, a principal in PEI who had promised that the kids raise a certain amount of money for some charity. He'd eat a worm, and that was like it, you know, it just he always had like really interesting stories and and things. Were, he was a master at storytelling and invoking like. Um, conversation mm-hmm. but it was great for me to be on his show and work on not on his show but work for his show because it was it was a turning point because I knew mm-hmm. that um, that this sort of this creative energy wasn't being fulfilled yeah on, on Morningside that I needed a career change and I wasn't sure at that point what that career change would be yeah what was your role uh, working on Morningside I was one of the producers so I would pre-interview guests and come up with um, research 
that you would write up a paper about their background and, oh, okay. and then come out with um, uh, questions for them to mm -hmm. ask. So, so, but what I learned from that was he was having all the fun. Yeah. He was really enjoying himself, mm -hmm. but I was never going to be a great producer for um, other people because I, some people were born mm -hmm. to do that, like come up with yeah. research questions, analyze the questions, come yeah. up with really great background material. But I, it wasn't what was going to satisfy me. Right. So then I, I knew that I needed a, a career change. Mm -hmm. to do. And that's when I took the course at um, the Ontario College of Art and made barbecue films. Yeah, your first film. Yeah. So, um, so you you taking that, and then okay. So uh, I just want to. Uh, so you get you get married kind of around the time that you graduate. You come out to Saskatchewan and you're doing freelance work uh, out here. And then are you, are you did you work for CBC out here too? Or? I worked for Larange. You got married and moved to Larange. All right. And yeah. I worked there for a few months and then I got the internship with Peter Zosky. So then I had to leave my husband who I knew newly married. Mm -hmm. moved to Toronto um, I had, it was a six month internship I think I finished four out of the six because by then I was pregnant yeah. and gave birth to Mesa yeah. and then we both went back to Saskatchewan because he couldn't work in Ontario mm -hmm. because they had changed the law um, any physician with a degree from outside of mm -hmm. Ontario would, would no longer be given a billing license for mm. three years Yeah. so that's what I was talking about today I don't know if you were there at the talk today but I was like Kind of like an act of God saying you try to escape Saskatchewan, <laughs> but I will make it so that you can't. Yeah, because exactly. I was like, he was unemployed. I was on EI. My parents like were kicking you out, and and you know like we couldn't need an in income. Yeah, so yeah. well, that must have been kind of a fish out of water story of your own, like coming from a bigger center just outside Toronto to Larange, which is yeah, it was the first time I Northern was introduced Sask yeah. to the Aboriginal community mm -hmm. and. Um, you know, we had never been taught the history of First Nations and growing up in Ontario. Mm -hmm. So it was like a huge revelation. Yeah. You know, what was happening, what the reserves were like, how mm -hmm. know, the suicides were happening like every other day. Oh, really? And I yeah. was unexposed mm -hmm. to any of that. Mm -hmm. So it was like a huge learning curve. And then realizing that I would be living in Saskatchewan. I mean, mm -hmm. that was, you know, because when you're very urban, you think you can only survive in an urban context. Yeah, yeah. And this was, you know, Saskatchewan 20 years ago. Because mm -hmm. now we have much more diversity of people and mm -hmm. it's grown so much. But it was very different then. So then, you know, sort of, I had to decide, well, I can't be, I, I won't be a journalist anymore. Mm -hmm. That's when I started taking the... Um, Ontario College of yeah, Art, I made yeah. the short film Barbecue Muslim. In, in your decision to do that, oh, in your book you talk about, it was when you went to Mecca and you kind of had this revelation uh, when you're looking at everyone uh, camping and lying down sleeping on the sand. And and uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful chapter, I really love that chapter. And, and, um, and could, maybe you could tell us for people who haven't read the book a, l a little bit more about that experience. Like Going to Mecca, yeah, it was a really tough, arduous physical and emotional journey mm -hmm. where you're supposed to do all these rituals mm -hmm. and somehow come out the other end more spiritual or engaged. Mm -hmm. And I mean, everyone takes a different lesson from that. Yeah. And I think for me, it was two things. One was I wanted to have another child because we had one already. Mm -hmm. And 
I wanted a change in my career path. Yeah. So two huge changes. Two huge changes. Yeah. And so the, after that, I, after the Hajj, I stayed with my parents. My husband went back to Saskatchewan to work. And I took the course, the Ontario College of Art. Hmm. And that was when the Oklahoma bombing happened. Yeah. What's the, I've heard you talk about this before, but what's the, was the connection between the, your plot was uh, two Muslim brothers, their barbecue explodes and everyone yeah. thinks they're terrorists. Everyone believes they're terrorists and the actual terrorists are um, the barbecue anti-resistant front <laughs> and they're against air pollution. Yeah. They're a little ahead of their time with global warming. <laughs> I guess that's true, right? Now that I think back on it, I don't know why I would have picked that, but if you barbecue, that mm-hmm. like that, that what's going into the air, carbon oh, monoxide, well, right, is it? From yeah, well, it would be gas going, burning, for sure. You're burning coal, right? Yeah, for sure, that would be... That's not good for the environment, no, right? I no. mean, I, I, collectively, I don't think we're destroying... I mean, it's, it's, it's probably, it's but, not as bad as other things. Yeah, but... Anyway, so this is an extremist fringe group. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so they accidentally, bur- you know, blew up a mm-hmm. Muslim barbecue, and so they're being arrested for being Middle Eastern terrorists. No, they. So they. No one's paying attention to them, the actual terrorist mm-hmm. group. But the Muslim brothers whose barbecue has been blown up are being um, arrested for being Middle Eastern terrorists. Yeah. And though this is just this is a student project. Yeah. And you did it in an afternoon, or you filmed yeah. it in an afternoon. Yeah. And. Uh, and then you you got on a TIFF with that film. I did. I got into the Toronto International Film Festival, which is a miracle given the quality of the film. Yeah, well, but then again, like what what uh, what year was that? Nineteen ninety six. Because I'd say that's about the era where people really wanted like more substance than people didn't care about technical stuff. Like that's when Clerks comes out, right? That's when yeah. Kevin Smith explodes. You yeah. Know? So. So, but so they love they love the content, but you you, you said the technical aspects. The technical were... was yeah, that left a lot to be desired. <laughs> but they loved the fact that it was original and about terrorism, and I was talking, you know, in satire about stereotypes and Muslim mm-hmm. terrorism, and so that sort of launched my career into filmmaking. Because mm-hmm. then after that, I did a few more, and the National Film Board discovered me and said, "Make a documentary for us." Yeah, and that's where I made. Um, me in the mosque, which is about sort of patriarchy and Muslim communities and how yeah. universal it is and how, especially in religious communities or really any community, if you think about it, men tend to dominate and they change the rules and they misinterpret and they mm-hmm. add their own, you know, worldview yeah. to keep women subjugated and controlled. And, so and, I, and this rule is about the barrier. The There's barrier a total barrier between women men, and men. and men and women so that they couldn't mix. And then I wanted to show that you know, okay, if this is so Islamic, then why is it missing from the mosques in the seventh century mm-hmm. where the Prophet was alive? Like yeah. that makes no sense. If that was the ideal mm-hmm. community, how come they had more mixing in men and women yeah. than we do today? And so I made a documentary about that. And that's where the idea of an Imam who's born and raised in Canada who can sort of see through the patriarchy and the culture because he doesn't come yeah. from the same cultural background, so he doesn't have the same baggage. Mm-hmm. That's kind of where Little Mosque is. That was the, the idea. idea. Of, yeah, yeah, the idea for Little Mosque came in. And so I was at the Banff Television Festival and I pitched it. And everyone was like, do you realize how seriously the executives here are taking you? Mm-hmm. I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was uh, how we went into production. Because he supposed that we'd like to you know, take mm-hmm. us into production. So we did. Yeah. So with the, with the documentary, um, one thing that struck me about it 
is that it's some of the barriers between men, you know, there, there was some of the barriers between men and women were so obstructive that there was, it would totally, totally hinders the worship. Right. So yeah, like some of it, some of them was basically a whole other room. Yeah. Sometimes and, women are put in a different room. They can't see properly, this, can't hear properly. Yeah. So you couldn't really hear this sermon Well, I mean, whatever, presumably they have speakers. Teaching. And, yeah. But it's yeah. not the same thing. But you could basically, like, by that, you could basically record it and just watch it at home or something, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. So. And do you find that there's a d- difference in that attitude now, like, sin- since then? I think there's a difference in attitude in the second, third generation community. Mm-hmm. Um, and communities that don't have, say, as many like, newcomers. Because, yeah. like my mom was saying, back home, it's sort of normal. And so people expect mm-hmm. the mosques to look like that. And because yeah. we have such a high rate of immigration in Canada mosques tend to be full of new people mm-hmm. and so like this cycle keep perpetuating itself so unless you live in a community where you've got a critical mass of second yeah. third generation muslims then you'll see more change happening mm-hmm. where people collectively yeah. are saying no my my favorite scene in that documentary is when you're talking with your mom oh yeah and because um and you ask and you ask her what does she want a barrier would she like a barrier not a barrier and she says that she likes it more when there's not one and you know, you can see. Of course, it makes the worship better, right? And uh, and I don't I don't know if, it, but it seems like when when she gives your answer, you're, it seems like you're so because um, in your book you talk about your mom's a little bit more conservative. So is mine actually. And and uh, it was it uh, and it just seemed like you were just overjoyed that she agreed with you on this. And I was and, surprised, right? Because, yeah. Like I just thought she would be happy with more segregation and more barriers. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seemed like she was really enjoying her experiences at the mosque mm-hmm. that she went to. I mean, they love going. They go like yeah. every Friday for their senior day, and yeah, like there, it's like their community. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. you have to get there on time because she's one of those chair people that sits in the back of her knees, and then there's only so many chairs. And mm-hmm. oh my god, if you have to visit her on Friday, like yeah, you better be ready to leave early or don't bother <laughs> going. Yeah, yeah. Or if you don't go, then you'll like it'll be hell to pay. Because why aren't you going? You know, right, it's right. Like, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's such an interesting uh, thing growing growing up with you know with a, like because I grew up with more conservative family too, and and uh, do do you find do you find that that in your in your faith and uh, how you live it out? Do you think do you find that that influences your parents too? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that they. Like they're all, you know, they're obviously affected by the fact that we don't practice the same way they do. Mm-hmm. Like I remember taking my mom to a mosque that was more LGBT friendly, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't think she would have come, except that I was taking my friend's mother, mm-hmm. and I told my mom, "You won't be comfortable because of the type of mosque this mm-hmm. is." But I'm going to take my friend's mom, and I think she was jealous that I could bond mm-hmm. with another person's mother and not my own over this issue and she didn't want to feel left out yeah yeah so she came so which mm-hmm. is really odd for her <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah. she actually came and sat you know she didn't say anything and she later told me you're not allowed to tell anyone that i went <laughs> yeah. yeah so it's interesting that you know we do influence our parents in mm-hmm. several ways and they do get mm-hmm. affected yeah. by those changes for sure because they influence you know you so much growing up and stuff but I think there's something that happens you it know once you get older yeah. yeah for sure it does yeah so um, so you make your first film 
barbecue Muslims, and then and then after was it right at, was the TV show right after that? Wasn't there something in between? Did you do? So I did d- Death Threat, and then I did right. documentary me and um, me in the mosque, and then the oh, okay, show. okay, and then uh, and then so starting so once they they say we want to make a TV show with you, and we're we're going to do this, like what what happened from there? They paired me up with more experienced writers because I had never done sitcom mm-hmm. writing before. And so we made the pilot. And the original pilot had a man, was it Mrs. Iqbal? No, it was a woman die during the prayers. And then they washed the body hmm. and realized that Mrs. Iqbal was actually Mr. Iqbal. <laughs> oh my goodness. That was going to be the pilot? That was going to be the pilot. <laughs> and. The, they were not sure how to deal with it. Yeah. He was transgendered. Yeah. That was the original pilot. And then the imam. And then that's when I learned that um, in a certain period of um, Muslim history, there used to be, like, so you have the men, then you praying, then you have the women praying. Mm-hmm. But there was a certain period where they actually had a third sex of, hmm. pe- of people that they did, couldn't identify as men or women who either were transgendered or hermaphrodites or so, yeah. Yeah. You know, something that was going on. And there was much more tolerance and openness yeah. when it came to these issues than we have today. Hmm. And so that came out. So the imam was asked what to do about this. And he says, well, because, you know, women wash women, men wash women. So it wasn't a case where we don't know. We do like a dry washing and then we do prayers and we wrap the body and we do the prayer and the body is buried. Wow. And so that was the original pilot. And then what happened was that the show got put in turnaround because um, there had been an axing of all the executives and they got rid of all the shows. Oh, is that why it came in mid-season? Yeah. Yeah. And then new executives, but we survived, but with the mandate to rewrite the pilot, they wanted sort of a more edgier, I, I guess that was considered... Edgier? Yeah, I, that, wanted, would, that would have been... That was pretty edgy, but I guess in tone. More yeah, tone, yeah, yeah. Less, you know, conciliatory. So then we changed it, then got a new writing team and we changed it. But that was the original pilot. In a way, it was good it didn't air because I think it, the Muslim community, would have, they were having a really tough time with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, in your book, you talk about how, uh, yeah. when, I don't know how far into the season it was, but uh, people were getting angry with your husband and saying he should divorce you. Yeah, that was a pilot. Luckily, the pilot was just about the moon, the moon sighting for me. <laughs> it was like, yeah, that was good that I didn't put in the transgender issue. <laughs> Yeah, were you surprised? Yeah, I was really surprised. I would have thought that they would have loved it because, you know, everyone was always talking about how Muslims should go into media and, mm-hmm. you know, control our own image. And then when you do that, they're like, mm-hmm. no, that's not the image that we wanted. <laughs> but, you, you know, we were talking about a group of people who really yeah. were hoping for a very conservative, right of center, everyone's a perfect Muslim, Muslims don't make mistakes, it's mm-hmm. comedy, we don't laugh at ourselves. Yeah. You know, we are upstanding citizens and mm-hmm. you know, perfect people, and that was the image that they that's wanted. That's boring for a comedy show. It was pretty boring, but that's what they wanted. <laughs> Plus it's propaganda. Yeah. <laughs> and untrue. And so, um, but that's, you know, that's what they would have preferred. And so gradually, you know, this the show started winning over sort of a younger generation and then it was interesting because non-Muslims kept coming up to Muslims and saying, we love this show, and sort of bonding with them mm-hmm. over it. And yeah. I think that's when Muslims realized that, you know, people weren't actually mocking Islam and Islam was made oh, vulnerable yeah, because of it. Yeah. In fact, the opposite was happening. Mm-hmm. So I think it helped a lot. Mm-hmm. And so they started coming around. Yeah, I, th- I, I think, because you, you, in your documentary, you, your brother Dutch doesn't want you to make yeah. the documentary because... 
he, he says, well, look how we're portrayed in the media. This isn't going to help. You know, and your argument was, I think people will see, look, there's, there's, you know, um, this, this problem, uh, in our, in our community and not everyone's a monolith that thinks one way about it. And then just, and like for, for me and I think anyone else, you watch that and you think you relate to it, you know, cause you're like, Oh yeah. Like I've gone through things with that with organizations or my church and, and, um, and it's incredibly relatable. And I think that's what little mosque in the prairie is. It's just this incredibly relatable thing. And the people, you know, happen to be Muslim too. And that's, and that's, well, even though, you know, it's not just that because, uh, you know, uh, the Islam is such a huge part of the show, but it's kind of really just about people, you know, and, and I, I just, just think humor is the way to go, you know, and changing help, perceptions. Yeah. No, you're right. Um, Absolutely right. You know, um, we're talking about that article that, that you wrote for Funny or Die, yeah. which is uh, five reasons why Trump might be good for Muslims. And, uh, and it was a really, really funny article, but then I, uh, I saw the, some people had made comments and some were very aggressive. Yeah. And then I saw that you had actually responded to a couple of people and I, and uh, cause you know, on Facebook you see that certain people respond and, and the first person said, oh, I can't remember. I think it was something like if Islam is so peaceful, blah, 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 kind of thing. And, uh. And, and I saw you responded and I thought, oh my goodness, she has to put up with this crap all the time. And I was, uh, and I was like, well, she must have lost it. Um, I would. And, and then your response was, but our hummus is great. Yeah. And then he's, and then he says, oh, I, maybe I'll have to try it. <laughs> I <laughs> and know. I just thought it was, it was insane that you went over the, and there's people that were more aggressive than that. I can't remember what the, someone, some person called it. Hobby garbage or something like that, and then you were making like salad jokes. Yeah, this and is it took like he was very aggressive. It took him like maybe five comments of jokes, but you won him over too. And yeah, that surprised me that they calmed down. <laughs> I didn't think it was possible. Yeah, and I just thought it was amazing, and it just made me realize, like, you know, because I get into petty Facebook arguments all the time. It just made me realize, like, humor is how you change percep- per- people's perceptions. Yeah, I used to get into fights with them, and it was pointless because they would just. Dis- you know, it would be an endless, vicious cycle. Oh, yeah. yeah. So then my husband was like, please stop doing that. I said, oh, okay. But I felt like I had to say something. So some of the, so I just started answering with salad jokes yeah. and how, what kind of ingredients I like I, myself. I think you should write an article that's just screenshots of your responses to people. I would read that. that would, yeah. <laughs> it, was it was good. It was good. It was good learning exercise for me mm-hmm. in how to respond to trolls in a way that can de-escalate. Yeah, uh, the vitriol and just bring it, you know, mm-hmm. and have just people just talk to you because it's amazing how quickly, it, like for some people, they just de-escalated. Like, yeah, I should try hummus. Yeah, and the other guy, like, try it with crackers, and then someone else like, ha ha, it's a joke. Get it, crackers and hummus. <laughs> yeah, like you're a cracker. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I just thought it was. Yeah, I thought, I thought it was. It was probably. It's probably. I couldn't. I couldn't decide what was funny or the article or the responses. Yeah, because I think that was that was um, my first time attempting that, mm-hmm. which I think is good. It's a good. It's a good learning thing for me as mm-hmm. how to deal with aggression. Yeah, and turn it around without being arrogant or like you know mm-hmm. mean to people. Yeah, your dryer is done. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Oh my goodness. How are we doing for time?
Uh, we're doing good. Um, so, uh, in your book, you um, talk about the start of, of, of you know getting getting the the deal with uh, Little Moscow and Prairie with CBC, and then you just say, and then followed six. I think you might have said six seasons. Six seasons, yeah. but I think you might have used the word tumultuous. I'm trying to remember. And, and what like what was that process of going through through the show? Like, it was really, like, you had to come up with ideas that were funny. And at certain points, the, the CBC realized that people were really interested in all the weird Muslimy things. Mm-hmm. But after a while, you run out because there's only so many oh, yeah. Muslim things. And you're just like everyone else. And so that became huge. Like, how do you make a show about Muslims? And people want to know all the weird, unique cultural things. Mm-hmm. There aren't a lot of them. And you can mine them pretty quick. And yeah. you know, it could be like 91 episodes. Yeah. And so that got challenging, right? Because... You put in fake ones, like <laughs> like in some episodes. <laughs> and so some episodes were just about regular community mm-hmm. stuff that people interact with, misunderstandings and, you know, because there was nothing left to do, <laughs> sort of like them all. Yeah. You know, and that's when I realized that we're not as weird as I think we are after you get through a lot of superficial stuff, mm-hmm. we run out of stuff. Yeah. And then you just have to make a story about people. And you said, and you said you weren't as involved towards the end. Like, yeah. was was that just because you were kind of moving on creatively? Yeah, or? I was moving on creatively. They also had a Muslim writer, um, Sadia Durrani, who was from Winnipeg, and she was able to sort of take my role. And as as I mentioned, like I had to do a lot of traveling back and forth, mm-hmm. and gradually, as they needed me less, then I wanted to travel less. Yeah, and be with my kids who were getting older. Yeah, yeah, and be able to write from home, and. Yeah. So I wanted to start sort of phasing out that really desperate need for me mm-hmm. to be there all the time. Yeah, that must have been like really hard for... It was hard because they were like this age and, you know, yeah. just, could you imagine losing your wife for six months a year on <laughs> yeah. long weekends? Like, yeah. it would be hard. Oh, for, for, for sure. But was it, was it hard? Was that hard for you or was it... It was harder for my husband because he was the one having to balance it. His yeah. Career. His yeah. Career. You're just having the time of your life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like with a bunch of mean comedy writers and they're like, you're not that funny. You're like, oh, okay. Someone said that to you? I don't, well, I mean, I think it's implied sometimes when, when you come up with a joke and then they look at you like, did she say that? Right? Like, I mean, why are you so surprised? Right? Yeah. <laughs> Shouldn't be that shocking. Did you ever come up with a joke and then people were kind of like, what about it? And then and then uh, you watched it later and saw people laughing at it. Yeah, sometimes like, you'd be like, oh my I God, knew it was funny. that was funny. Or you'd be like, oh, I didn't realize, you know, that people would respond that much to it. And so it like vindicates you, right? But I would say to be sure... Um, because when I, when I wrote the book, because you're writing comedy, but you're writing like seven to nine, we're writing it with seven to nine other people. And then when you write your script, you also get it punched up by the team and everyone goes through line by line and makes it funnier. So when you wrote, when I wrote the book, I remember telling my editor, okay, so we're going to hire some people to make it funnier. Right. And she's like, no, (laughs) that's not how writing a book works. (laughs) You're just one person. And when you finish the book Mm -hmm. and you think it's as funny as it can be we publish it yeah. and I was like but wait and she's like no there's yeah. no such thing as punching up books like, and yeah. so that scared the crap out of me I'm like but then people will think I'm not funny and the book mm-hmm. won't make people laugh and then people will know I'm a fraud and you know <laughs> and that's, that was my biggest fear yeah was that I'd finally be exposed <clears throat> were there characters on the show that you enjoyed writing I think strangely enough like, Bobber who in my real yeah. life is my nemesis ended up being the most popular character for everyone to write and watch on the show. Oh, he's he's great. Got great lines. I also yeah. really loved um, 
I can't remember his name, but he's the second priest after Father McGee. Oh, Reverend Thorne. Yeah, Reverend Thorne. He's he got a lot of good lines. Yeah, he did. I think that's the that's the truth about comedy is like sort of the the more nastier people. Yeah, they're easier to write. Yeah, because he is such a dick. You know, it's, it's but a lot of um, Anglicans were upset with me for bringing in a for back. oh bringing in. They wanted Duncan back. Yeah, well, maybe there's a little a little bit of the, with the other religion happening. You said people wanted. Per, didn't like yeah. not having perfect Muslims because he was kind of the perfect Anglican, he was. you know. He was so sweet, was, nice. Yeah, like he didn't do anything wrong. I he didn't make too many mistakes, and and but it was Thorn that was. Oh, I, and I lo- I love that character. The guy that wants to go back to Toronto. He's the first and, person that told me that. <laughs> that said what? They like Thorn. What? Yeah, everyone was like so <laughs> mad at me for that. Like, really? Like, my decision it was. A He's a thing. funny character. I him and Bob are probably. The funniest characters, I think. But. I think they evolved into these really interesting people mm-hmm. that you never see on television, right? The Muslim conservative and the Christian conservative, mm-hmm. and how they're grudgingly put together, and <laughs> yeah. they both believe they're, the other one's condemned yeah. <laughs> for their religion, but they're, <laughs> but they're allies in the same place, right? Yeah, it was yeah. a hilarious relationship. Yeah, they did, that was that was good. So, um, so after the shows, did you when did you start writing your memoir? Was it towards right the after? Time? Yeah, right after the show ended. I. Um, writing it. It took about two years. Mm-hmm. Lots of rewrites. Mm-hmm. Trying to figure out how to write it. I mean, I wrote it more seriously at first because I wanted yeah. people sort of to understand Islam. And my editor was like, you know, this is terrible, right? <laughs> Why don't you write the way you're used to writing? Which is comedic. Yeah. Story-like. And that's one of the things I just loved about your book and, and, and was so relatable is it was so much of it was like finding... You know, a lot of it's about your family and that type of thing, but a lot of it's like finding yourself as someone who, uh, in your faith, as someone whose personality, you know, a bit goofy and, and, and uh, you know, you make mistakes here and there. And, and to me, it was very, um, I found that I found it very intri- intriguing that, that uh, you like, I did learn a lot about Islam from the, from the book, but, but, uh, but I also related to it so much because, because, you know, I, I come from a conservative Christian background and it just so, yeah, yeah. I, so similar experiences, but I hear that a um, lot. And I think that what that means is that like the universal experiences of people are pretty much the same, mm-hmm. maybe a different phase of colors or from different you know, mm-hmm. faces in the world, but ultimately we're just people Yeah, and we're all doing the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I love, I love the chapter where you talk about washing the body you join the body washing mm-hmm. because when, because um, because in, uh, if people listening don't know, uh, in your culture, there's no pumping people full of weird Chemical. their body full of weird chemicals after they die to and to keep them uh, preserved. Uh, it's just into the ground kind yeah. of th- kind of thing, and so there's a, a, a washing a ceremonial washing, and it's a very serious uh, thing, but. But you, as a way of coping, were like sort of would make yeah. jokes and stuff, and people don't like it when you laugh and make jokes. <laughs> <laughs> but I just thought, oh, this so you know that's the parts of you know parts of faith that can be like so serious. You know, like we went we would visit an Anglican church the other day, and my my son came up to me and goes, "Why are they so serious?" No, not serious. He said, "Why are they so sad?" <laughs> and I was like, "It's just, I don't know. <laughs> it's just the you thing." Know. People expect, yeah, it's like people expect. Yeah, yeah. Was it ritual? Was it solemn? 
but not that I think in your book you you, you, you take um, anything lightly. It's, it also seems very in, endeared to your faith too. You know, like the Mecca chapter was. Yeah, it's so interesting because my son was like, "That was the most boring chapter in the whole book." It would have. No way! I love that chapter. But non-Muslims really seem to resonate with it. I think partly because it finally explains the Hajj in a way that's mm-hmm. understandable. Yeah. Because it's like you know, all you ever see on TV is people going around this black cube and like. Right? Yeah, what yeah. Is, exactly? Yeah, but I just I just loved it because it had funny stuff in it too. You know, the whole like being bummed out that you can't have sex and you know jokes and and uh, but at the same time being uh, you know I don't even want to say serious, but uh, you, you know deep just deeply uh, affected by yeah. the event too. You know, so well, I'm so. glad you liked it. That indicates yeah. me after my son. He's like, that's the worst chapter in the whole book. <laughs> is it interesting? Do you ever think? Do you ever think about uh, your your fu- your future grandkids reading all your stuff? And no, I never thought about that. No, no. Should I be worried? No. <laughs> who do you write for in mind? Like, who who are you usually thinking as an audience? And you know, I don't really think about the audience. I think about um, the story and where is it going, and will mm-hmm. this make sense? Yeah. And can I finish this in a way that's really inventive and fresh and new? Yeah. Hmm. So what's next? Write a novel about a mm. Muslim woman who accidentally joins an ISIS like group and is the first Western person that ISIS needs to get rid of before she destroys <laughs> them through her antics. She accidentally joins? Yeah. It's sort of she didn't mean to get the imam in trouble but gets him accidentally deported and she needs to rescue him <laughs> and he's in the clutches of isis yeah yeah she has to join them convince them that she's a recruitee and so that's going to be a comedy <laughs> <laughs> uh, that'll 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 be that'll be great i'm really looking forward to see, seeing that because you, you know you're talking like so much of your do you, are you ever going to write something or create something that's uh, not rooted in your faith? I, you Do you know, think you'll ever write a sci-fi book? It's a good question. I'm going to definitely write something which does not have the word mosque in it. <laughs> yeah. I think that's very confusing for people when they introduce me. Yeah. You know, she's a writer of this and a thing of that, and it's all mosque, yeah. mosque, and then they get all tongue-tied. So I think that... Uh, I don't know. Like I think that I'm really tied to writing things from personal experience mm-hmm. um, and what's happening in the world. Yeah. And I'd, and I'd have to... You know, experience it and know it, mm-hmm. um, and things like family and having kids and community and neighbors and mm-hmm. that sort of thing are the things that interest me the most. Mm-hmm. And faith, which I think, yeah. you know, ever evolving, and the world is a you know, as you and I both know, for our, our is changing rapidly in our lifetime. Oh, yeah, through globalization and communication, and we live in interesting times, more interesting than we'd hoped for. <laughs> And so it's so much fodder, right? Yeah. You, you need to write sci-fi. You can just write about your next door neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. You know, yeah. the aliens can't have nothing over us. <laughs> so. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, so uh, those of you that are listening in your cars or at home, uh, you can get Laughing All the Way to the Mosque anywhere they sell books. Amazon is a good spot. Do you get money, a lot of money from Amazon? I don't know. Where do you get the most money from? I've yet to get money other than the advance. So <laughs> I, I can't even answer that question. Well, just go out and buy it. It's a hilarious book, and you might learn a thing or two as well. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me on.
That was good. That's awesome. You're really good. Thank you. So are you. Interviews. I'm not. Yeah. 